I'm Melissa. I'm Jam. And I'm a chemist. And I'm not. And welcome to Chemistry for Your Life. The podcast helps you understand the chemistry of your everyday life. Bonus, Bonus. edition. Oh, I was going to try to beat you. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> okay, Jam, I'm really excited. I guess I'm always excited, but we got good questions this week. Awesome. I feel like we always get good questions, but um, I never know what they're going to be until like right before. So. <laughs> well, actually, some of the questions are specifically for you this week. Oh, nice. So I'll let you get started with the first few and then I'll take over about halfway through. These first few questions actually are from some of our age bonders, our, Yay. Our, mo- our third sort of most whatever tier of our Patreon. We love all our patrons. These are the people who donate the most mm-hmm. and so they'll get to read their own questions. These first couple are from Bree. Take it away, Bree. Hiya. So my name is Bree from Austin, Texas, and I was wondering, how do scientists safely determine what molecules are associated with the scent? Like, how do perfume developers know which molecules are safe for human-scented products and aren't, like, carcinogenic, caustic, or dangerous for a topical application? This is such a good question. Okay, now, this answer could have changed, and I think I maybe have talked about this on the podcast before. Uh Uh-huh. But I, I learned this from someone else who's a chemist who did an internship at, I don't, I think it was maybe Johnson & Johnson, but I don't know for sure. So allegedly. Yeah, allegedly, yeah, okay. <laughs> and he told me a story that when he um, would, <laughs> when he was an intern there, they would tell people to come up in the morning and you would get free breakfast and you could put like the scent molecules on your skin. And like a little bit of each scent. And then you would come back later in the day. And if you hadn't broken out, then that was good enough. Because scent is not regulated by the FDA. Right. I think you've at least just talked about that part of it before. That's yes. not regulated. It's not regulated by the FDA. Or it wasn't at least then. I don't think it is still now. So whenever you can, opt for unscented products. Because that's going to be a better option. Or, you know, something that's maybe scented with a, a diluted essential oil might be okay, like uh, the lavender oil and stuff that we talked about. But really, even then, those can be irritants because there's a lot of organic molecules, like all in that scent. It's not just one, you know? So I would say wherever you can avoid scents or work with a scent that you know that you're not uh, sensitive to is probably the better option. Right. When I saw that question, I was really excited that I was going to get to talk about that because he said they would go up and get like donuts or whatever. (laughs) Just the interns would go and put that on their skin and then it was voluntary. He didn't have to do it. (laughs) It seems kind of crazy. (laughs) Is it possible that like there could be some sort of scent that's bad for us, but that wouldn't like react on our skin? Like, Mm, yeah, I think there are things that are carcinogenic. Um, they, I think they, there are things also that are called, I don't, they're like called transporters basically where they can pick up other things and take them with you. Mm. So I don't know. I think that fragrance, I'm, I'm looking at the FDA website now and it said that the fragrance ingredients should meet the same requirements for safety as other cosmetic ingredients, but the law doesn't require that FDA approve them before they go on the market, but they are supposed to be safe. Mm. But I don't know how they determine that. Yeah. So I think if you knowingly put a carcinogenic 
smell on the market that you would get in trouble for that. But I don't know if it doesn't need to be approved by the FDA. I don't know how they make sure that it's safe, you know? Right. That's a, that to me, that's very um, hands off. Right. Maybe it'll only be after the fact if there's reported problems. Yeah. After it's been out there for a while rather than let's vet this before. Yeah. Or whatever. So I, I feel like opt for unscented product. And ever since I learned that, I usually do try to opt for unscented products. Yeah. And my, most of our stuff is unscented, which is sad because I used to love the combination of this podcast has taken both of these away from me <laughs> is a combination of the type of laundry detergent and dryer sheet that my mom used for yeah. us all growing up. And she would like, you know, on Sundays, she, we would usually do our own laundry, but on Sundays she would always make our bed for us. So I'd like mm. come home from work and my bed would be made and it would smell like that. And now we use unscented things and no dryer sheets because of what I've learned as a chemist. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. We're, we had to do the same thing with um, scented detergents and stuff like that and soaps because with babies you want to yeah. like kind of just keep that away for a little while. It's kind of one of the best practices is just for the first while to obviously not add to the things that could cause problems for kids or whatever. And so yeah. like if you washed in a scented thing that was irritant to yeah. a baby, then there's going to be all irritated and anyway, all that stuff. So better not to better not to. So we've kind of, and then we have two kids. So it's like, okay, we just buy just one detergent is so much easier than yeah. having like the scented one for us and the non-scented one for the kids seems just, yeah. yeah anyway. Yeah. And well, and also in cosmetic pro products, I do that too. So all my lotions and soap in the shower, you know, all that stuff is unscented. So whenever you can go unscented, it's probably a best practice to do so. Hmm. At least that's what I do. Dang. Well, very interesting question. And now let's hand it back to Brie for her second question. And I was also wondering if you could talk about what it's like for your peers pursuing a PhD who decided to have kids because I'm getting married next year. March 25th. Um, and I would love to have a kid eventually, but I also love the idea of getting a PhD in biophysics or science communication. So I was just curious. Okay. This is a good question. And I would say, um, you know, Mason and I eventually want to have a family and we're sort of in the information gathering stage of what that's like. And so the, I think I've asked a lot of people what it's like to have a kid either be being in a PhD or uh, in academia in general. And I would say it's definitely possible to have a kid and get a PhD. Definitely having a kid is harder than not having a kid in my experience, <laughs> um, just in life in general. And maybe, maybe it's just trading good things for other good things. I mean, Jam, maybe you could speak to that more as a parent. It just makes life maybe a little bit more busy and you have to spend time thinking about and taking care of humans that aren't you. Right. So would you, is that been your experience? Yeah. And I think I've, people have asked me about becoming a parent a bunch like, and all these people who've asked me about that, actually their life looks a little different. It's not like right. everyone's got the same thing, but one of the things I think is true across everyone who's asking this kind of question is like, you're just going, there's going to be some significant change that has to happen. Right. And just deciding about that with your partner sooner is is better. So one of you is either going to have to work a lot less and watch the kids, or you're going to have to decide that you want, that you have a plan for a daycare, that you're willing to spend that amount of money, and you've got, you know, some some ideas in place of what that could be, so that you can still allocate the right amount of time toward 
your career PhD that you want to, but it's going to have to come from somewhere that time. And so, um, I do know some people who have not really thought through that and then they're like surprised, you know, like, Oh wow. I guess one of us has to really totally change our directory or we didn't look into the cost of daycare and wow, it's expensive. Oops. Yeah. We got to change our plan. It's just like something's got to give somewhere, I guess is, is one way to put it. And I think one nice thing about, I, I do know people who have had kids while they were getting their PhDs and like, that's totally viable. It's totally an option. So one of my previous boss, I think she had, she had one or two kids while she was actively getting her PhD. Wow. Um, and she has a good partner who helped her out a lot. And then a friend of mine recently had a baby while she was finishing up her master's and she has a baby now with, a, as she's going through her PhD. Mm. So that's just two that I could think of off the top of my head. Your life is going to have to change. You have to really think about it with your partner, like what Jam said. But also the nice thing is grad school, depending on your advisor and what kind of field you're in, can be more flexible. Mm. So you have these classes that you have to get through and you usually have to do a teaching assignment and then you have to do research. But like a lot of my research can be done remotely. So if you're interested in a field that allows for that, then you can absolutely do that. Right. And then you have more flexibility to work while a baby's sleeping. You still have to work, but (laughs) there's some ages where it's easier to work while they're home than others. Um, And then also I would say, this is just what I've heard from other people because I don't have kids yet, but I have gathered a lot of information. I'd also say that you have to think about if it's in biophysics or in another place where you're going to be in a lab, that's a safety hazard. So (laughs) um, you have to think about that. Like I know someone who wouldn't be in the lab the whole time that they were pregnant because their lab had a lot of organic molecules in right. it. If I had stayed in organic chemistry, I would probably stop working in the lab from pregnancy right? until child was born plus maternity leave. And that could impact grad school more, you know, so it really just depends, but I think it's totally possible. I think, um, I've also talked to women who got their, uh, PhDs and then went into academia and then had kids and men also, um, And they just talked about how like there's a phase when kids are born where you just kind of slow down a little and you kind of have to, but, um, you just be productive in the time that you have and that's kind of all you can do. So, yeah, but definitely not impossible and definitely, um, a burden that not just you, but you and your partner can talk about together and figure out like, what is this going to look like? It's going to be a change. Yeah. So that was a good question. Yeah. That's a tough one too. It's obviously it varies a lot. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that's a good question. But as more and more women are in STEM, it's important to talk about that. And also I think, I hope that fathers are also thinking about that too. Yeah. I know a lot of men who their careers also change when their, their ch- children are born, even jam, you know, but also men in academia who the pace at which they're working has to change. Yeah. Especially in those maybe initial adjustment phases. Totally. Yeah, like we like I did a career change before we even started trying to have kids, but that was one of the big reasons why. Right. It was like, oh, I knew I couldn't do that same job anymore. Um, it which wouldn't have worked with me and M schedules and and stuff like that. But it was, you know, it was just one of those things that was more like way ahead of time that yeah. we did or whatever. But the dream is for me and Jam to work and uh my husband and his wife to be stay at home parents while we do podcasting and our other activities. Yes. (laughs) That would be our, that's what we really want. Yeah. Slowly but surely we're getting there one episode at a time. (laughs) 
The next question is from another H-Bonder on our Patreon, from Tim. Tim says, so my husband loves honey mustard, and I've noticed that in the bottle, it moves more like a gel or a jelly than a liquid, but it seems more liquid when it comes out. I've also noticed that when I clean the bowls he uses for dipping, that it tends to come off all as one chunk or in skins. And I wonder, is honey mustard a polymer? Okay, so I don't know off the top of my head if honey mustard is a polymer or not. But what that reminds me, I don't, I don't get involved in honey mustard. I think, though, that what you're describing is the non-Newtonian fluid that we talked about. Like, oh, yeah. Do you, we, we did this, an episode on cornstarch and water, sometimes called oobleck. And we talked about how sometimes when you apply force, like liquids will flow more or less and they don't have this like um, consistent, understandable resistance. Right. And so uh, we talked about with cornstarch, when you apply force, it like, if you punch it, it, it pushes back on you. Right. But then we have a friend who took a bath in it. Do you remember? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when you move around slowly, then it's very liquidy. But I guess I think ketchup then acts the opposite. It's like it's when you put the force on there, it it acts more like a liquid. But when there's not force on, it acts more like a solid. Right, right. So um, it sounds kind of like honey mustard is doing that. And if I remember that flow of the fluid was called rheology. Mm. And we didn't have a lot of answers as to why. Right. So it might be a polymer, but it also might have these non-Newtonian properties about the way that it flows. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like probably, I wonder if a lot of condiments are like that, if it's, or if it's just a handful. But Maybe so. I don't know. And I wonder if it has to do with like, do they put cornstarch in there to thicken mm. it up or something? I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure what. Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know. But that was a good question. And we learned something new. We learned that Melissa doesn't really go for honey mustard. <laughs> yeah, I don't really. I didn't know that about I you. I don't, except I will say I worked at Texas Roadhouse for a while. Mm. And that honey mustard had like a weird consistency that reminded me of like the Chick-fil-A sauce consistency. Yeah. Where it's not like that clear see-through. It was like creamier. Right, right, right. And I did like that. Okay. So. Nice. You know. There's one example where I sometimes go for honey mustard. Right. But very rarely. It doesn't sound good to me. Okay. This next question is from Alex on Instagram. Alex said, for pharmaceutical chem R&D, what should I get my degree degrees in? So R&D is research and development. So when they say pharmaceutical chem R&D, it means like research and development for pharmaceutical medicines. Mm. And honestly, a lot of those are organic molecules. A lot of medicine is organic. Um, there there may be a some where it has some metals involved, but for the most part, I would say that it's organic. And so I would probably focus on that. Um, but I also know there's other fields that you can learn about, like uh, pharmacokinetics, I think is what it's called, where it's like you look at how medicines interact with the body and how they move through the body. Mm. Um, so there are a lot of different fields you could do. What I would probably ask honestly is to find someone who is doing pharmaceutical chem research and development and reach out to them via email if if the available information is on the website and see if they could get back to you about what they did or also reddit the um 
the organic chemistry Reddit forum might be a good one to mm. ask this question uh, because people who like to answer those questions and who are in those fields sometimes hang out on those forums. Yeah. And then also there are people who might specialize in research that's related to pharmaceuticals that you could go and get a PhD working with someone doing something like that. Mm. So those are kind of all the different avenues I would think you could go down. Maybe you could do some LinkedIn creeping. You know? Oh, yeah. I forget, I forget about LinkedIn. Yeah. Most people should forget about it. But <laughs> occasionally in situations like this, it might help. I don't know. Yeah. And I do think, I don't know about everybody, but a lot of people want to help, I think. Right. They should anyway. We have a problem with people not persisting in STEM. So. Yeah. Interesting. That's good. This next question is from Audrey M. Audrey asks, do you have to have a bachelor's in chemistry to start a master's in chemistry? No, actually you don't. Ah. So I know people who, you should know a good amount about chemistry, but I know people who came into grad school and their background was in biology or usually it's another STEM field because you have to know a lot right. about the, the topics, but um, they want you to have kind of a foundation. But you could have majored in you know, fashion merchandising. And then as long as you took those courses and you have the foundation, I think you could get into that program. Right. Um, but yeah, a lot of people don't have their bachelor's in chemistry specifically. And there's another thing called post-bac where you have a bachelor's and then you decide you want to do something else. So you go back to school just to get those things. So say Got it. you have a degree in finance and then you realize you want to go back to grad school and learn about chemistry you can enroll in a post back program where you just take the classes that you need to be relevant for your per particular field that you want to pursue. Nice. And then you can apply to those things. And a lot of times they'll have you take, uh, some schools will have you take entrance exams or exams that show kind of what your basic level of understanding is. Um, and then you maybe will have to take some proficiency courses to get you up to the same level as people who have a degree in chemistry, but you really don't have to have it. <laughs> mm. So that was a good question. Interesting. I would not, would not have thought to ask that, but that makes sense. It's like having to go get a whole other bachelor's over again seems like that doesn't make that much sense. Yeah. But having a way that's like kind of the middle ground, if, if your bachelor's wasn't in a like a science field already, then that makes sense. That's helpful. This next question is from Bailey. Bailey asks, how do adhesive removers work? Okay, Bailey, I didn't look this up because that's my rule for chemistry for your life Q&Rs is that I don't do research because <laughs> I do so much other research. These are meant to be short and sweet. So here's my initial thought. Chemistry off the cuff. Chemistry off the cuff. Adhesive, I think, primarily works by strong intermolecular forces. Mm. So adhesive remover theoretically is something that can have a even stronger intermolecular force that that thing will interact with the adhesive instead of the adhesive interacting with the thing you're trying to get it off. So it basically gets in there and has stronger forces that can overcome, or it might even solvate or dissolve, like surround the thing that has an intermolecular force with, for some reason I keep thinking of tape on a table because we're by a table. Right. So if there's like a sticker or tape on the table you can, I think, either take the route of trying to dissolve it or trying to overcome the intermolecular forces. Mm. So think of like, what is that orange stuff? It's like goo gone. Yeah, yeah. That, I feel like the adhesive peels up. Yeah. It doesn't disappear. So I think 
when that happens, it's maybe just overcoming the intermolecular forces and coding the thing that's trying to bind. Yeah. So that's what I think. I've used Google on a bunch of times and I just can't remember what, like what my eyes see when yeah. I'm using it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just remember that it works, you know? Yeah, it works. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's my chemistry off the cuff, but I, I don't know that we've done a whole episode on adhesive. We did stuff on sticky things. Yeah, I think we we sort of did, but it was really into the intellectual forces side. It wasn't, I don't think we talked about removing. Yeah. But that's, I guess, when we started the conversation about all the different intermolecular forces. Yeah. So, Way back in the day. Yeah, a long time ago. Okay, well, now, Jam, I'm changing it up. Okay. And now I'm asking you questions. Okay. So Bailey also asked, does salt actually make water boil faster? And we did an episode on this already, and it, it has kind of a weird name, which is probably why you couldn't find it. Yeah, right. It's called, Why Didn't Jam's Pot Ever Boil? Yep. And so my question for you, Jam, is do you know if salt makes water boil faster? I, I do know. Okay. I know that it doesn't. It does not. That's right. If anything, it, it could be, depending on the amount of salt, mm-hmm. it could be negligible or make it slower, make it boil more slowly because of the colligative property Ugh. that things like salt and other things can have when you dissolve it into water and it can mess with the ability of the, I forget that all the details, but mm-hmm. of the water, this, the, the, it to overcome the atmospheric pressure as it's heating up and reaching that temperature to start boiling. Yes. So basically it makes the boiling point higher. It makes it harder because boiling is when uh, the vapor pressure is equal to the atmosphere pressure or greater, I think. I can't remember exactly that definition. I go back and listen. <laughs> <laughs> I had it for that episode. But basically the va- the water vapor needs to be able to escape. Right. And the salt can make it harder to do that or other things dissolve, like you said. And so it you have to get to a higher level of energy for it to be able to overcome that barrier, basically, and become boiling water. So it boils hotter. So you're still putting in the energy. You might be getting to 100 degrees Celsius or 212 Fahrenheit before you see the boiling because that, that boiling isn't at a set temperature. The mm. boiling temperature can change. Right. That was one of my favorite episodes we did early on. And it's very memorable for me because the reason we, we titled it that way is because I had this very specific story that I had told Melissa before that I was trying to cook pasta for my whole family one time at a recent family gathering a couple years ago. And this massive pot I was trying to boil and I could, it just felt like it was never boiling. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, what is going on? I also think it was, you added a more metal to it, like a strainer to it part yeah. way through. And that's like a, a heat sink basically that like took more heat away from right. it. There's all these things that went into yeah, it. A lot of salt and did that. It's like, it could have been all the things combined. I can't remember how, like how often I had the lid on, which we <laughs> talked about that being like, I'm like a, definite benefit yes. for boiling things. Yeah. But I'll tell you what I do now is I always add salt at the end. So like mm. when it's already boiled, so pasta, you know, for taste or even for rice or like that, mm-hmm. I like to add salt at the end. If I'm boiling, if I'm trying to get the water to be boiling as quickly as I can, I'm not going to mess with that until the end. Yeah. And, and it might be getting to that temperature before it just doesn't look boiling so right. you could still, when it seems hot, add your pasta and it not be actively boiling, but, but it doesn't really 
you know. Yeah. That's you don't know for sure. That like boiling is the metric we use to know. Right, right. <laughs> so okay, that was a great one. I was excited that you remembered it and I was excited that someone asked so that I could quiz you. Yes. And that's like such a good nice applicable one, like weekly usable. You think about lessons. it a lot. Oh yeah. Okay. And then Audrey asked, What are good gifts for the coffee lovers in our lives? That is a very good question. Mm-hmm. I definitely have opinions. I think lowest price point, I would say. Find a super good bag of coffee from somewhere. Like, because the max that's going to be is like 16, 17, 18 bucks. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if it's a coffee drinker like me, you find what coffee you're going to kind of drink on a regular basis. But being given like a special and like nicer than you might normally spend mm-hmm. on a bag of coffee um, from like a really good, high quality, like specialty coffee roaster is really nice. Um, and even if that's something that the coffee lover in your life already buys, it, you might be getting it from somewhere that they haven't had before. And different regions taste different, right? Yes, different, yeah. So you could find like a coffee that seems a little different than you think, mm-hmm. you know, this coffee lover in your life might have already experienced or something like that. And high quality is usually single origin, right? For yeah. those of us who don't know anything about coffee. So it's like one type of bean, not a blend. Yeah, and even if you don't see the, the word single origin, if it says like, a country and then has like other words that seem like it might be describing the region or the farm. Mm-hmm. It's probably single origin. Um, that's probably the lowest price point. And then if the coffee lover in your life doesn't have a good like vacuum thermos kind of thing, vacuum layer. Mm, uh, like an insulated thermos. Insulated thermos. Yeah. Thank you. Then that's a great one. I mean, like everyone's going to appreciate that. And those are kind of middle tier mm-hmm. price. You know, you can get a good one for like 20, 25 bucks depending on the size and stuff and then at the top end the this is not you know something that everyone necessarily needs (laughs) but the best coffee gift i probably received in like well not the best one of the ones i find myself using all the time is one of those mugs that literally has a little heater in it yes (laughs) it keeps your coffee at a specific temperature those are a little bit you know um what's the word (laughs) Unnecessary, but delightful. Yes. Unnecessary, but delightful. You would not buy it for yourself. Yeah. And I didn't exactly, but it's, it was really nice to have and I use it a lot. But also one thing that I've always, I've actually given away a lot of these to people who are, they love coffee. They're trying to get into it. It's just mm-hmm. a French press. Yeah. French press is good. If people don't already have one, they'll probably really love it and use it quite a bit. And it's also nice for making, like, if you've also given them a bag of coffee or something, mm-hmm. it's easy to make a good amount of it and not mess it up. Like, it's French presses yeah. are hard to mess up. And so. you can also get it, like, you can do cold coffee in French press, too. Yeah. So that's another option, like a cold brew. Yeah, I've been given a lot of French presses, and I've given them away as well. Um, and if probably in the past five years, I've had, like, five different French presses. Wow. That I've been given one and then I'll give one to somebody else when they're like, I want to get into coffee. I'm like, well, here you go. I've got, yeah. I have one more French press than I need. But so, so those are a few ideas. I ha- I'll throw in two, even though it wasn't my question. No, please. I was given a mocha pot, mm. which those can be hard to get right at first, but I really, really like it because it gives me the opportunity to make something like an espresso drink at home without yes. the whole process of learning how to do espresso which is actually really hard totally (laughs) and then also one time I gave Jam a book about coffee that's right and it was by this person who's really cool James Hoffman Mm -hmm. sometimes he goes by Jim Hoffman Uh he made it like an atlas of coffee 
And he's really, his show is uh, on YouTube. He has the channel where he tries out different things and he gives tutorials and he's just, yeah, he's just really cool. So yeah, that was, that's a good gift too. I think that's actually that, that book that once gave me is literally the reason why I caught myself and changed my wording. Cause I said the coolest coffee gift. And I was like, well, that's actually not true. <laughs> That book is super cool. I just don't use it every day. <laughs> That's true. And yeah. Jam has told me how nice it is to have a cup of coffee stay the right temperature. Yeah, it really is so, nice. So that's nice. And also a coffee grinder, maybe. That's yeah. one. If someone's just getting into it, they might not do the coffee grinding and that can give you a nice fresh, yeah. fresh cup. Yeah, definitely. Coffee. Yeah, there's, there's so many things. Dang, it's so hard. Another brewer I would recommend that's kind of cool um, very similar to the maca pot is the an AeroPress. Oh yeah, they're super fun. And depending on what different brew methods your coffee loving friend or family member already has, um, this one's really fun. And everyone I know who has an AeroPress thinks they're so fun. Yeah. And there's so many ways to do it, and there's like lots of just recipes online. Mm -hmm. And the people who created it, like, they have a recipe, but they didn't really give you these rules that are like firm. Yeah. So you can just do it a bunch of ways. So, and they're really cheap. I mean, they're really like, I think 20, 25 bucks, something like that. But they're a lot of fun and you can make cool espresso-y drinks yeah. uh, with them or you can just make straight up coffee, you know, so. And if there's someone who likes sugar and milk more than coffee itself, you could get specialty syrups. Oh, nice. Yeah. You know, like like the Monin has good syrups and or you can make your own if you're like looking for a really cheap DIY. Nice. There's a TikTok channel where they make different flavors of syrups at home. Yeah. One time, Audrey, I'll like end it with it so I don't keep just thinking of things and be like, oh, one more thing, one more thing. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm doing oh, yeah. it too. <laughs> it's such a fun topic. But a couple of years ago, a friend of mine was trying to get into coffee and he wanted me to write him a guide of different options of things he could get, like a different grinder, different kettle, that kind of stuff, different brewer. I like wrote that and I saved it to a Google doc knowing that it would be useful someday. So yeah. if you're like really wanting more options than we already gave you, then just message us and I'll send you that document. Um, if that's the kind of person you're trying to buy for, or yeah. whatever, um, that need that you, they may need like a kettle and a grinder and a brewer and all that kind of stuff. But if not, then the several answers we've already given probably was surprise. <laughs> so, okay. So the next thing is not a question. It's a, actually just feedback that somebody gave me. Um, that's what the next uh, few things are going to be actually. So I put them all together. Okay. Okay. So the first one is actually from friend of the podcast and current boss Jordan, and he wrote in uh, to say something about our sunscreen episode. Mm. So he said he was listening to the podcast on sunscreens. And from the parent perspective, if you haven't encountered this already, the newborn community has moved away from sunscreens that contain typical organic molecules to avoid oxybenzone as it has some adverse effects in hormone regulation and potentially is carcinogenic. However, he said his understanding is that the rates of those adverse effects are lower than the possible melanomas associated with not wearing sunscreen. So the FDA thinks it's salient to continue pushing organic containing sunscreens. Mm, thing. And my dermatologist said something similarly. I asked what, what sunscreen she recommended and she said the one you wear. <laughs> so <laughs> there's that. He also said what to expect in baby center, which are uh, big parenting sites will pretty unilaterally recommend titanium and zinc oxides. 
But the, you know, then he also tempered it by saying the whole community of new stressed out parents has a tendency to be extremely risk averse. <laughs> yeah. Then he also said there's some evidence that octocrylene degrades into benzophenone, which is also, you know, the possibly carcinogenic and can do some damage to your reproductive system. But I definitely think the information we have now makes it seem like it's better to wear sunscreen than not. But right. if you're worried that probably the um, inorganic ones are better for especially little kids. Um, they, However, they do sometimes show up as like they do what's called a white cast that makes your skin look really white where you put it on. They don't fully blend in because of that metal oxide. But like for me, the metal oxide sunscreens run into my eyes. I've mm. noticed maybe because they're like sitting on the skin more, but then my eyes will water. So it's better for me to use the other kind if I'm going to use sunscreen, which I try to every day. But I did not realize that it had such a high association. So we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> but so I thought that that was a helpful information to share. Yeah, dang, that's interesting. There's so much there on the sunscreen stuff. I remember when we talked about the benzene ring stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my gosh, there's a lot to think about. But also the basic of just like everyone should wear it though. You should wear it because it's likely that the risk that you have from putting on sunscreen is lower than the risk that you definitely have from the sun every single day. Right, right. And especially, you know, all people of all skin tones should wear sunscreen, but I do think that melanin in some people's skin helps protect them a little bit from those damages. But you're not immune because one of the biggest dermatologists I follow that we gave a shout out to, Dr. Shaw, he has uh, darker skin and he got uh, skin cancer on his chest from tanning. Mm. And that's when he was like, wait, no, no matter what skin color you have, you need to be wearing sunscreen every day. Right. So, and also don't go tanning. Yeah. It's bad for you. Yep. Sorry. Okay. The next one is from Tim. Um, Tim this is the same time from earlier, but this was in a text message. So I'm just summarizing the information. Got it. He's listening to podcasts from the beginning. So he's listening to the baking soda, baking powder episode. Okay. And he said that there is a recipe that only uses baking soda in cookies. And I wanted, I guess back then I was like, what's causing that to what acid is it reacting with? Oh, is baking I see. soda is a base. It reacts with acid to give off air bubbles. And that's why it makes our cookies fluffy. Right. And he's, I, I think I looked it up and said it was brown sugar that's acidic. And he said, in case you didn't know, or, oh, yeah, I looked it up and said that it was brown sugar, that it was acidic, but wasn't sure why brown sugar was acidic. Uh-huh. So he looked it up and found that many components of molasses are acids. And then he even gave a link to a website that gives typical percentages. And usually the pH of molasses is between five and seven, which is neutral, but five is on the more acidic side. Mm. So molasses is the cause. And that is also, I think, what makes brown sugar brown. Oh, yeah. Right. So thanks for that information, Tim. Yeah, that's cool. And then finally, uh, we got a little tidbit from Mr. Hollis. So Mr. Hollis is a high school chemistry teacher. And he he was the one who sent us the article about the mosquitoes Mm. that inspired last week's episode. And after he finished listening, he said he sent me a message on Twitter that said, He enjoyed the discussion of the GC mass spec, which that's when we talked about uh, the gas chromatography and mass spectrometry. Mm. And he had his students 
uh, visualize, he wrote in that he had his students like basically visualize chromatography by using Legos. So he said, I had my seniors build one out of Legos. They had to build a contraption that would separate one by two, two by two and two by four Legos. <laughs> so it's, it does sort of give that idea of like, based on the different properties of the different molecules, you can separate them out in chromatography. Oh, yeah. And so he's using the size of the of the Legos to separate them out in the same way. Interesting. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so I appreciated that. Isn't that kind of what a burr grinder does too, to bring it back to the coffee? Doesn't it only let certain sizes through? I guess it doesn't that's really right. sort it out. It doesn't sort it, but yeah, it does similar because the bean would have to be broken down small enough before it could ever even pass through. So yeah. if the bean gets cut in half, it's still not small enough. It'll just stay up above until it gets cut down more. Gotcha. Gotcha. But yes, it's, I guess it is similar, but it's, it's trying to get to one side. Yeah. It's sorting. making everything instead of just separating. Yeah. And if it didn't of, have the grinding part, right. it's sort of making them reach a, um, a sort of a reach a maximum, but you could have parts that get smaller than that yeah. and fall through. So but. I thought that that was a good way to visualize. Like we usually separate by the molecules properties like polarity or something else, but he's, having them separate out by the Lego size, but it does give a good visual representation of what chromatography does, which is take different types of molecules and some get to move forward and some stay behind. And then mm. you have another layer come out. So I thought that was really cool. That's really cool. So normally at this point, we would use our bonus episodes to give a shout out to our supporters on Ko-Fi. However, we've recently made the big switch to Patreon. There are a few people who are still supporting us over on Ko-Fi, and since they were our original supporters, they've been with us through the beginning, we're going to shout them out as well as our Patreon supporters. So from Ko-Fi, we'd like to thank Melissa P., Brian K., Derek L., and Stephen B. Thank you so much for supporting us on Ko-Fi and for all that you've done to keep us keep our show going throughout the last few years. This episode was also made possible by a growing, cool community of patrons over on Patreon. It means so much to us that you guys want to help make chemistry accessible to even more people. Those supporters are Nicole C., Timothy P., Bree M., Chris and Claire S., Hunter R., Stephen B., Avishai B., Chelsea B., Christina G., Emerson W., Shadow, Brian K., Suzanne S., Jacob T and Lynn S. Thanks again for everything you guys do to make chemistry for your life happen. This episode of chemistry for your life was created by Melissa Collini and Jam Robinson. I would like to give a special thanks to E Robinson who reviewed this episode. Mm -hmm.